Tonight, I still want us to... Whoa. All right. Is that better? All right. I want us to look at the passage that the... I just want to make sure everybody's awake since it's a Sunday night. And I don't know if I was sitting where you're sitting. I, I might be a little drowsy. So, All right. I want us to look at the passage that the Ethiopian eunuch looked at with Philip. And so turn, if you're not already there, to Isaiah 53. We'll actually start at the end of Isaiah 52. This is the fourth of four servant songs, is a title that's been given to these excerpts from the book of Isaiah. We see the first one in Isaiah 42, another in Isaiah 49, then Isaiah 50, and now this one is the fourth of them in Isaiah 52 and 53. Isaiah writes in his book to a people who should have served God, but instead had wandered off to idols. A people who should have trusted in God, but instead who trusted in various alliances with pagan kings. In contrast to Israel as God's servant, who served poorly, sinfully, and selfishly, Isaiah's servant songs point to a servant who would serve God completely, obediently, perfectly. We understand from standing where we stand in light of the cross that these servant songs point to Jesus. But before we make that natural connection, I want us to think about what we are reading in these verses from the perspective of the people who originally heard it. That would have been Isaiah's audience, uh, the people of Judah. The theme of this particular song, I think, is the servant who is exalted after suffering. And so let's start in verses 13 through 15. We see, first of all, that the life of the servant is a paradox. Why do I say that? Well, it starts out in verse 13, that he acts wisely and will be exalted. Behold, my servant will prosper. He will be high and lifted up and greatly exalted. And if we say that this is about a suffering servant, that seems a strange way to start a description of the suffering servant. But Isaiah starts by looking at the end result of the suffering of the servant and not specifically with his suffering. And certainly, as we consider this idea of, being, of prospering, of being wise, he is highly and lifted up and greatly exalted. We certainly see the connections to that in the New Testament, but we'll come back to those in a moment. But verses 14 and 15 have this strange contrast. Just as many were astonished at you, my people, so his appearance was marred more than any man, and his form more than the sons of men. Thus he will sprinkle many nations. Kings will shut their mouths on account of him. For what had not been told them they will see, and what they had not heard they will understand. These two verses are very difficult to understand because, uh, first of all, they follow right after my servant will prosper, he'll be high and lifted up, and then it immediately jumps to people will despise him or be astonished at him, something about him sprinkling the nations and the response of the kings as being one of wonder or amazement in response to sudden realization of something that hadn't made sense to them before. And so we start by seeing this idea of being astonished. The beginning of verse 14, just as many people were astonished at you, the Nazbe supplies my people, but this is certainly something that there's some question about. Why you? And then immediately jumping to the servant. Is it addressing the servant himself? Is it addressing the people of Israel? Why does it switch back and forth between the two? And certainly there does seem to be a connection that's being made. And I think that, in part, the connection could be made if we consider Israel's history. 
God's people were not those that the nations would naturally look to as being a military force or as being exalted among the nations. Why? Several places the Bible says you were not the greatest among all the nations. You were not the most numerous. You were not the strongest. And yet I chose you to be my people. I think that is perhaps the connection that Isaiah is making here. Just as many people were astonished at you, they're also astonished at God's servant. What is the thing that they're astonished about regarding God's servant? His appearance was marred more than any man and his form more than the sons of men. And I think that this develops what we'll see in the second half of verse 2 of chapter 53 where it says he has no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him nor appearance that we should be attracted to him. But specifically, this servant is going to go through a terrible trial and a terrible suffering and this will bring astonishment to the people who behold it. And then we have this, this key idea at the beginning of verse 15 about he will sprinkle many nations. Normally, you would see sprinkle and then some sort of phrase describing the manner of sprinkling, the nature of the sprinkling, what is being sprinkled, but that's not supplied here. Nevertheless, I think that thus he will sprinkle many nations is connected back to the promise that God made in Genesis chapter 12. That what did God tell Abraham? that there will be a blessing upon the whole world through your family. I think that this is connected with that. I think it's also connected with what the people would have observed in a regular basis in the temple, the sprinkling connected with the sacrifices, connected with atonement. That certainly fits the context of what we'll see in the, in the rest of the verses in the chapter. Why then will kings shut their mouth? Why will they understand and see what they had not been told, what they had not heard. I think it has something to do with what's going to take place with God's servant. He's going to go through this terrible suffering. Through it, he's going to accomplish this sprinkling. The response of the nations is to say, had the nations received this prophecy? No. God's own people had received it. What is going to happen? They are going to marvel, be amazed. Some of them are going to turn in a response of faith toward that servant on account of his suffering, his, what he accomplished there, and then as they come to understand how all these things fit together. So the servant's life is a paradox. Isaiah develops now more this idea of the servant being marred and despised, or, or specifically, he starts out that he is ignored and rejected. Verse 53, Who has believed our message, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Potentially, the hour is referring specifically to just Isaiah. Some think that it was referring to Isaiah and some of his followers. Some think that it was referring to all of those who are trusting in God connected with this message. And I think that that fits with this idea of the remnant that we see in the prophets. So the hour message would be those who hear and accept the truth that the prophets are proclaiming. They're going to say, here's what they've said to us. And the people around them are going to say, why? We don't understand that. We don't believe what it is that you're saying. And the, the idea about the arm of the Lord would be, who has seen God's power? And certainly those who are trusting in God and faithful to God do see His power, and those who have rejected Him do not see it except in judgment. What does it say about this servant? Or, or why would the people hear the message that they're saying and then say, 
that doesn't make any sense. I don't believe it. It says he grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of parched ground. Think about the imagery here. Think about something that's very dry or very desert-like. Uh, we were talking this morning about growing different things and the type of soil that you have. Different things will grow and different things will not grow. And it's kind of funny, a lot of places that we live here in Michigan have clay soil. And when it's really raining a lot in the spring, it's just sopping wet, it's muddy. Come summertime, it's just hard as a rock and dense and parched ground, right? And then all of a sudden you see a tree growing out of it. This, I think, echoes back to what it says in Isaiah 11 about God's righteous branch. And so I think it connects back to that idea as, as well. So this is an unexpected report because of the origin of this servant is as though out of a desert, out of a place that people would not expect. Furthermore, that the branch, the one who is revealed, the servant himself, has no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him, nor appearance that we should be attracted to him. I think of the example of Saul. Why did the people of Israel want Saul to be king? He looked like a king. He was head and shoulders above everybody else. He uh, just sort of looked like the sort of warrior that would lead the people of Israel to victory over the nations. Was that the case? No, because as God spoke when he anointed David through Samuel the prophet, God doesn't look on the outward appearance, he looks on the heart. So he, and the people of Israel want Saul, the one who has the appearance of one who should be exalted. And God instead chooses David, the youngest of, of his father's sons, who's a shepherd, who's not supposed to be all that important. In the same way, God's servant here is not anything special in terms of his appearance, his position of majesty, any of those sorts of things, and yet he is the one that God has appointed. Uh, this uh, develops into an ultimate rejection of him in verse 3. It starts out with him being ignored or, or misunderstood, and it, it sort of uh, it reaches its end point in him being actually rejected. He was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Like one from whom men hide their face, he was despised, and we did not esteem him. So this servant is going to be someone that people are going to reject. They're going to say, why should we listen to you? They're going to say, we want to see you suffer. Then Isaiah turns and describes the life of the servant, from the life of the servant, sorry, to the specific nature of his suffering. Verse 4, Surely our griefs he himself bore, our sorrows he carried. He bore sin and suffering for others. Notice the emphasis there. It was our griefs, it was our sorrows, but instead he took it upon himself. He bore them, he carried them. And yet... The response of the people who will observe this is that he was rejected by God, he was struck by God, he was afflicted with the implication of because he deserved it. When the reality was that he took it upon himself willingly, 
for others. And then verse 5 says he brings peace with God through his suffering. And look at the nature of his suffering in verse 5. He was pierced through, he was crushed, he was chastened or punished, he was scourged. So that was the nature of his suffering, the, the ways that it is described. What was the reason for his suffering? The reason for his suffering was, again, our transgressions, our iniquities. Transgressions crossing over the line, iniquities doing things that are repulsive to God, these were the basis for the punishment of the servant on behalf of others. And yet, look at the result that's accomplished at the end of verse 5. It falls upon him, and yet by it we are healed. It brings, in other translations you might see, this idea of bringing peace with God. In context, what is the healing that is accomplished at the end of verse 5? It's a spiritual healing. It deals with our problem of sin. But certainly Isaiah 19.22 develops the idea of both physical healing from a plague and spiritual restoration as it speaks to the nation of Egypt. So this servant takes upon himself sin and suffer, uh, grief and sorrow for others. He endures suffering on the basis of the sin of others and secures healing, restoration for God's people. And then verse 6 says, He bore the sins of those who deserved punishment for those sins. They deserve that punishment for their own sins. Look at verse 6. All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. God's people had strayed. We look at the book of Isaiah. In what ways have they strayed? Over and over again, if you just read through the book, and I, I didn't do it justice, but I read through it this week, and you just, even in a brief reading, you see over and over again this idea of you oppress the widow and the orphan, you reject the commands that God has given to you, you run off to make alliances with pagan nations, you don't worship God properly in the temple. All of these themes are repeated over and over again in the book of Isaiah. So who was it that deserved punishment? It was God's own people, Israel. All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. That imagery of, of sheep is significant when we come to the next verse, verse 7. And yet despite that, despite the fact that it was God's own people that deserved the punishment... God took that punishment and places it on the servant. It's both God's purpose and it is the way that God accomplishes the payment for that sin. And so we see, moving from the suffering, from the life to the suffering to the death, the servant ultimately dies for others in verses 7 through 9. First of all, verse 7, he suffers silently. He was oppressed and he was afflicted. Yet he did not open his mouth like a lamb that is led to slaughter and like a sheep that is silent before its shearers, so he did not open his mouth. Sheep are wandering. The perfect lamb willingly suffers. And this servant suffers unjustly. Look at verse 8. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. 
And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living for the transgression of my people to whom the stroke was due? So by oppression and by judgment he was taken away. These were the specific sins that the people of Israel were committing, specifically the people of Judah. They were committing oppression and false judgment, and that is the basis on which the suffering servant will be punished. And yet, he's cut off for their sin, for the sins of those who by the same sorts of sin that they were committing in Isaiah's day, they would repeat again when the servant came, God would secure payment for their transgression, to whom the stroke was due. It's as though the, the, the whip, someone's being beaten, and it go, it's supposed to go on this person, and someone else steps in their place, and it falls on that person instead. He suffers silently, he suffers unjustly, and he suffers among sinners. He's counted with sinners. Verse 9, His grave was assigned with wicked men, yet he was with a rich man in his death, because he had done no violence, nor was there any deceit in his mouth. And so he was counted as though he was wicked, despite the fact that he was innocent, both in act and in word. And that idea of yet he was with a rich man in his death is a foreshadowing of what we're going to see in just a few verses in verse 12. What he actually deserves versus what he received. These verses, these last few verses, I think would have been very significant, going back to the passage we looked at this morning, for Philip as he explained to the Ethiopian in light of Christ's recent death and the unjust persecution of God's people as they were scattered out from Jerusalem... You see how this passage connects to the gospel message and how Philip could explain the truth of Jesus from these verses. But what's the summing up of these truths? It starts in verse 10. The servant is exalted in verses 10 through 12. First of all, because he fulfills God's purpose. But the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief. The servant suffers at God's own hand. How, how would this work? How does this connect with verses 14 and 15? That he will sprinkle many nations, that kings will shut their mouths on account of him. I think for me it's summed up in what it says in Acts 2, 22 and 23. In Peter's sermon, where he points out to the Jews that by wicked hands you nailed Christ to the cross... And yet this was according to the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. A wicked act, fulfilling God's purpose, securing salvation. So the servant suffers at God's own hand. It is according to God's purpose. And there are many people who look at a passage like this and they say, that's not fair. How could God do this to anyone, let alone, as it says in the New Testament, His own Son? What sort of cosmic injustice is that? And yet, that is what the Scriptures say here. And what does it say? The Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief. If he would render himself as a guilt offering, he will see his offspring, he will prolong his days. Wait a minute. He dies. How is he going to have offspring and how is he going to have long life? 
think we see here an anticipation of the resurrection. And then the end of verse 10, the servant prospers despite that apparent defeat. The good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. Think about another place in Scripture where we see this sort of idea. Genesis 3, verse 15. You shall bruise his heel and he shall crush your head. God speaks in judgment against Satan and says that the one who is coming here, the suffering servant, is going to appear to be defeated, but he's going to be triumphant and accomplish God's purpose and secure salvation. And he will have many offspring. As it says in Ephesians, the firstborn among many brethren. Look at verse 11. The servant endures this suffering because he sees the results. As a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see it and be satisfied. By his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, will justify the many as he will bear their iniquities. As a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see and be satisfied. Uh, there's a question of, is this looking forward to what's going to take place? I think at least in the second half, it pretty clearly is. By his knowledge, it, we should expect by his death, by his suffering at the end of verse 11. But instead it says, by his knowledge, the righteous one will justify the many. What does this mean? I think the knowledge is, on the basis of what he knows will take place afterward, he goes through the suffering, and that secures the salvation of God's people because it says he will justify the many and bear their iniquities. And that is potentially what's being said in the first part of verse 11, or it could also be, as a result of the anguish of his soul or having gone through that suffering, he will see it as in the reward after his suffering and be satisfied at that point. So the servant endures suffering knowing, anticipating, seeing the results. And then verse 12 sums up this exaltation. He receives his reward. Therefore, I will allot or give or grant him a portion with the great. He will divide the booty, the spoils, the treasure with the strong. And so here's one who receives honor, and spoils and victory. These are the things associated with a conquering king. Why does he get those things? Because he poured himself out to death and was numbered with the transgressors. And so after he dies, after he is counted to be wicked and undeserving of God's kindness and judged by God, God will exalt him and the people will see he is the one who is triumphant, who reigns, who has secured victory, who deserves all of the things connected with that victory. He receives these things. Why? Because he took on himself sins and interceded for the sinners. Yet he himself bore the sin of many and interceded for the transgressors. And as we, as we put those two things together, those last few phrases. Because he poured himself out to death and was numbered with the transgressors, yet he himself bore the sin of any and interceded for the transgressors. Again, we see this contrast between what he deserved and what he received, at least initially, between those who deserve God's wrath and the fact that this servant is going to intercede on their behalf. And all of these things together come together and the servant is exalted after his suffering. 
So as we look at a passage like this, and knowing what you know of this servant from Jesus' life, death, burial, and resurrection, and even his exaltation, do you join with the kings who are first appalled and then amazed at God's work through his servant? Seeing the suffering that he endured, does that cause us to have a different perspective on sin and a different response to it? And then, do we believe in this servant even as Isaiah called his own people to do? I think that this passage calls us to rejoice in the suffering servant even as Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch do in Acts 8. And I think as we consider the message of this to Isaiah's hearers, we find hope in him even as Isaiah did in his day in the face of God's certain judgment You come to the end of the book of Isaiah, God's judgment is still coming. It's just delayed because Hezekiah repents and turns to God uh, later in his life. But the judgment is still coming, and Isaiah is looking there, and he's seeing that judgment coming. And yet he found hope in the fact that God was going to send one who would deal with this overwhelming issue of sin for the people of Judah, who would rise and conquer and secure victory. And that gave him hope, and that should give us hope as well. Let's pray. Lord, as we look at a passage like this, we can certainly see the significance of it for someone like the Ethiopian who was, at least in some respects, despised by the people around him and rejected by them. And while the nature of that rejection, the nature of his being despised, was not along the same lines as Christ in terms of what it accomplished, yet to see that Christ went through those things, we see why he was perhaps so interested in this passage. And then as we see, as we read through this passage, knowing what we know of the New Testament, we just see all the connections from these truths to what took place in the life of Christ, and we see the connection to the gospel And Lord, we see that your plan and your purpose has not changed from Isaiah's day even to now, that people would hear this truth, that we would turn from our sins, seeing it as that which caused Christ to suffer unjustly, that we would turn to Christ, seeing in Him the only acceptable payment in your sight, that we would hope in Christ, looking for His return, because He has been exalted and He will reign. And Lord, we pray that all these truths would affect our perspective on following you even this week. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.